And now, mind, body, health, and politics. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Today, I will interview the family and therapist and friend of Aaron Vargas, a young man who allegedly shot and killed Daryl McNeil, who Vargas claimed sexually and psychologically abused him for 20 years. Vargas reportedly snapped when the abusers started pressuring Vargas to babysit his new child. Mr. Vargas's sentencing hearing is next month, and we will explore what might happen to Aaron Vargas. What do you think should happen to Aaron Vargas? Stay tuned for this very interesting and educational interview. Welcome back to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Usually, when someone who's been a mainstay of a community gets shot and killed in his own home, there's a public outcry to bring the killer to justice, but not in the idyllic Pacific Coast town of Fort Bragg, California, where the citizenry has risen up in support of the man who pulled the trigger. Aaron Vargas has been in jail ever since February 8th of 2009, when police say he shot and killed Daryl McNeil, the man he alleges sexually abused him when he was just 11 years old and continued to abuse him until he was past 20. After the shooting, 12 other men came forward to say that McNeil, a former Boy Scout leader and popular member of the community, had also abused them. Some had reported the abuse but law enforcement officials evidently took no action. When the truth came out, the town rallied behind the 32-year-old Vargas. Citizens held demonstrations demanding that he be freed from jail. T-shirts supporting his cause are being sold, with the proceeds going to his legal defense. Cars sport bumper stickers supporting him. Even Daryl McNeil's widow is defending Vargas. With us in the studio today is Robin Vargas, who is Aaron's mother. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Selena Barnett, Aaron's fiance, and also with us on the telephone is Mindy Galliani. Are you there, Mindy? Yes, I am. Also, Todd Rowan, who is a friend of Vargas's, who came out and acknowledged that he also was abused by McNeil. Good morning, Todd. Are you with us? Good morning. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. In addition, we have Dr. Syrup, who heard about the story and got involved in order to help Aaron Vargas. Dr. Syrup, are you with us? Yes, I am. Dr. Syrup, we're going to start with you. How did you hear about the story, and what led you to get involved in helping Aaron Vargas? Well, like many people, um, I read about the case in the newspaper, and in this case, the San Francisco Chronicle, and um, 
I was absolutely bowled over by the fact that Aaron had been charged with first-degree murder because um, the article was quite um, uh, elaborate and from the standpoint of details, and it became very clear that Aaron had systematically suffered uh, abuse for many, many years over and over again. And, um, of course, it fits the category of uh, childhood sexual abuse and rape, and uh, we've been reading about it a great deal in reference to the Catholic Church, so it's a familiar subject for people, but um, when words are used like molestation and rape and um, childhood sexual abuse, uh, it doesn't elaborate from the standpoint of being specific as to what actually occurred to the individual. And it's horrific, so to charge him with first-degree murder just almost knocked me out of my chair. Um, so I thought about it for a couple of days, reread the article, and decided to call um, Aaron's family or anyone really that I could get a hold of to um, to see whether or not he's receiving any counseling, psychotherapy. Uh, and I found out to my shock that he'd already been in jail for 14 months um, and had been visited by a psychologist who tested him which was a very good thing to do, and also by a psychiatrist, but that no one, in fact, was uh, offering him any psychological services. Moreover, um, being in jail, of course, he he was uh, not able to provide any uh, funding for his family, which I uh, later found out he badly wanted to do and was greatly worried about. So I called Aaron's attorney and offered my services um, pro bono because... I was so outraged about what happened, and that's how I got involved. So you offered your services pro bono without fee in order to help? Well, yes. Yeah, it seemed like the right thing to do. Mindy Galliani, uh, you're, you're Aaron's sister. Uh, when, when did you first discover that your brother had been uh, sexually abused and psychologically abused by Daryl McNeil? It was the night of the shooting. My parents called me, and they told me what had happened and that Aaron had been raped by Daryl for many years. So you actually found out for the first time about the abuse on the night that you heard about the shooting? That's right. That's when we all found out about it. And what was your reaction when you heard about this? It was just complete shock. And then as the days went on, it was just... Um, putting all the pieces together of all the things that I had seen over the years, the behavioral changes in Aaron, um, all the horrible experiences I went through with Aaron of seeing him hurt himself and seeing him sad and angry and all the pain he was in. So I put all those pieces together over those next few weeks and months, and, and then it just was very clear to me what had been going on all these years, and, and then it was just guilt that I didn't recognize it before and that I wasn't able to help my brother. Uh, you just made a comment saying that uh, you, you remembered you know, seeing him hurt himself. What kind of ways did you see him hurt himself over the years? I've seen him cut and burn himself. You actually witnessed him cutting on his own body? Yes. And you actually witnessed him burning himself? Yes. How horrific. Uh, it's well known in my profession that when people do that, what they're doing is attempting to blot out 
something else that's going on in their consciousness and they're using the extreme of cutting themselves and um, and burning themselves as a way of blotting that out. Uh, would you agree with that, Dr. Syrup? Well, yes, I would. Uh, with one additional factor, it also provides the opportunity to centralize the pain rather than having it to diffuse all over the body. It gives it a focal point. And secondly, um, in the instances where the cutting occurs or the, if the burn is bad enough, they can actually see it and therefore make it in some sort of way more real and in that way uh, tell themselves that it's somewhat manageable to, to heal it by bandaging it or putting on medication. So as horrific as it may sound to the rest of us, the it being cutting on oneself or burning oneself, as horrific as that may sound, it actually is giving the person who's doing it some relief because of what you just said. Absolutely. Selena, you're Aaron Vargas's fiance. How long have you known him? I've known him nine years. And when did you first discover that uh, he had been sexually and psychologically uh, molested by Daryl McNeil? I found out about the molestation the night of the shooting. The same time that uh, Mindy found out about it? Yes. I did see signs of psychological abuse before that. What um, kind of signs did you see? Daryl would sometimes call our house 20, 30 times a day, and I could see that it was upsetting Aaron. I just didn't know why. I couldn't see what the background was behind it. Um, he would also drive by our house over and over again. Daryl McNeil, the man who got shot, yes. would call your home 20 or 30 times a day? Yes, because I had told him he wasn't welcome at our house and that I didn't want Aaron around him because I could see that it upset Aaron. So you knew Daryl McNeil? Yes. How did you know him? How did you come to know him? I knew him um, because when I first when I first met Aaron, he worked for Daryl, and I saw within the first year that we were dating that the relationship was not a healthy one, and I encouraged Aaron to end it. So Aaron was an employee of uh, Mr. McNeil's. Yes. During that period. Yes. And you say the, these calls came in, 20 or 30 phone calls a day. How often would that happen? It would come in waves. Um, sometimes he would call every day for a week or two, and then it would cool off, but then he would be driving by our house. Um, Aaron never answered the phone. I always took the initiative to call and tell him to leave us alone. Were you aware that this man was driving by your house on a regular basis? Yes. Did you find it personally frightening? I wasn't scared, but I could see that it was upsetting Aaron, and um, I just knew that he needed to stop. I knew that he needed to leave us alone. I mean, 20 or 30 calls a day is extremely unusual. I mean, do you have anyone else in your life that calls you on the phone for 20 or 30 times in one day? No, usually they call. If I don't answer, they leave a message and wait. And that's the end of it, right. just like the rest of us. Yes. Um, also with us is Robin Vargas, Aaron's mother. Good morning. Good morning. When did you first find out that... Uh, Daryl McNeil was uh, was sexually and psychologically uh, abusing your son. The night of the shooting. Also the night of the shooting. Yes, and, ha and how did you find out? Aaron told me. 
he did. And do you remember your reaction? I was just in such a state of shock at that point. About the whole thing? Uh, Yeah. And what were you told about the killing? Were you told something? Were you informed? Aaron told me about the shooting, and then he said that he wanted to tell me that he was sorry and tell me goodbye. And so I sat him down and held him. This was the very night? Yes. I had no idea why, but I knew something terrible had happened, and so I just held him, and then I, that's when he told me that Daryl had molested him and that Daryl was still out to molest other children, and he did not like the way he looked at Josie, his baby. And that was, according to the reports that I've read, one of the things that really pushed Darren over the edge, right. the, 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 the issue around the baby. Right. I see, Selena, you're shaking your head. What, uh, what, please tell us, uh, come closer to the microphone and tell us what, what, what's going on with you right now. After we had the baby, Daryl's, I guess, stalking became more incessant. Um, he, was, he wasn't welcome at our house, and I had made that very clear to him. And I would open my back door, and he'd be standing there asking to see Josie. He offered to babysit her, um, saying things like he wasn't busy and did I need help and could he hold her and... Um, it just, it was very disturbing to me. So you didn't know when he was making these requests that he had been sexually and psychologically abusing your fiancé, but you had a funny feeling about the way he was acting and, of course, these 20 or 30 phone calls a day mm-hmm. and the stalking. I just knew it was a really unhealthy relationship. I didn't know the extent of it. Um, looking back now, I can absolutely see it. I just wasn't willing to go there or something um but i could see aaron just shut down completely every time daryl was around and when i told him about daryl asking to babysit josie he just would go someplace else he would just get quiet and distant and i knew it was very upsetting to him so i knew i had to keep him away from us dr syrup Many people who are abused, if not all, do something similar to what Aaron Vargas did. Namely, they don't talk about it. Is that correct? Could you could you enlighten us about that, please? Oh, I'd say that's almost always true. Um, they do not talk about it. It's not unlike people who have been in the war. Um, they don't want to talk about it either because what they experienced is entirely too savage and horrific for them, painful. Um, And so to go there reawakens those awful feelings and resurrects them to the point of feeling them again because the nature of abuse is to have things that are actually ironically very close to the surface because they intrude all the time. And so the person who's been abused is constantly and perpetually warding them off these feelings with one form of defense after another. And so they have, it's kind of like they're uh, sentinels on watch, uh, on guard from their own circumstance. And it's also they, a way they feel that they can protect the people that they love and care about because they don't want them even to hear about what happened, lest they be injured in a similar way, psychologically. So if what's going on in their mind is so painful, 
that they resort to burning themselves or cutting on themselves in order, as you point out, to provide a focus for the pain and to provide some sense of, of possible healing because the, the burn area can heal and so can the, the cutting area heal, whereas their minds are not healing. If that's what's going on inside, what goes on with a person like Aaron Vargas every time this McNeil calls on the phone 20 or 30 times or every time he drives by? Well, uh, I, although um, Aaron has never really told me those experiences, uh, nor could I tell you what they were had he done so. It's very, very similar for most individuals that go through this awful experience. And to answer your question, it's like pushing a button of some kind where there's an alarm system within that activates and goes on alert um, to prevent feeling these things in a more saturated or a more drenched way. And so he, what goes on inside of him is this system of... Um, wanting once again to protect less these feelings of uh, shame particularly and um, also fear certainly fear come back because the perpetrator when he's perpetrating his crime with these young boys and young girls doesn't own the shame or the or the guilt that's appropriate to his act and somehow the child picks that up because it's in the atmosphere it's in the air it's part of the torture that occurs to take that in and so he doesn't of course want to feel that and so when he's being shadowed or stalked or drive by or a phone call he certainly wants to protect selena he certainly wants to protect josie with everything he's got because he was unable to protect himself listening to you describe this dr syrup uh, makes me think of, of the young men who are over in Iraq who go to work in the morning and their daily job as they're walking around entails the knowledge that at any second they could be shot at, killed, or blown up. And that's what they live with on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. And then they come back with a, and a high percentage of them, as we know, have a post-traumatic stress disorder. These men are in that situation for a period of months, maybe as much as a year. In the case of Aaron Vargas, he was under the, the siege, if, if I may call it that, for over 10 years. How does, how does he go on functioning? Uh, can, can you explain that? How does he make it to work? How does he go out and become engaged when he is under this incredible stress for such a, a lengthy period of time? Well, that's actually a very good question. Um, Actually, um, although the things that happened to these men in Iraq and Iran are unspeakably awful, and certainly um, one's pain is one's own pain and therefore more real in some ways, I would have to say that childhood sexual abuse that occurs over and over again, what we call systematic sexual abuse, is even worse. And it's worse because um, a child, actually all of us, um, when something really awful is is happening or is going to happen we really have only three so-called choices and that's fight or flight or freeze and a little kid uh aaron started when he was 11 he couldn't fight a big man like like mcneil and uh, he couldn't run away either because if he did he could outrun him mcneil could and he'd grab him so usually what happens with little kids is they just freeze they stop and they just 
kind of go numb. And that's what occurs to them. And it's um, it certainly happened in Aaron's case uh, because it happens to all little kids that that occurs with. But then I would ask you to imagine um, the notion of systematic abuse. Systematic abuse occurs over and over again, as we know. And you know what it felt like the last time to some degree. And so this future time, this time that's now happening, as he grabs you again, is going to be similar, only worse, because you know what's going to happen. And so to answer your question about how does he uh, function, well, he has no choice. He has to um, function. He has to take care of his family. And actually to be active and busy and involved with something is a distraction that he badly, badly needs so he doesn't have to be thinking and ruminating about the next strike all the time. Which so that's the motor. That's the that's the motivational force that enables one to function. Or with some people, they'll just literally collapse inside and and give up. And then and that they, wasn't they, uh, wasn't the case with Aaron. No, he managed to continue functioning. And as you yes. say, possibly the functioning itself gave him some solace, where others might go into a severe clinical depression and just cave. Absolutely, and that speaks to both his character and his mental health. We're going to take a short break right now, but stay tuned because when we come back, we're going to be talking with Todd Rowan, who came forth and acknowledged that he also was sexually and psychologically abused by Daryl McNeil, and he is here to tell us about it. We'll be right back. You're listening to KZYX 90.7 FM Philo, KZYZ 91.5 Willits and Ukiah, and 88.1 FM Fort Bragg, also streaming on the web at kzyx.org. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Welcome back to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Today we're interviewing the family, the therapist, and friend of Aaron Vargas, a young man who allegedly shot and killed Daryl McNeil, who Vargas claimed sexually and psychologically abused him for over 20 years. Vargas reportedly snapped when the abuser started pressuring Vargas to babysit his new child. Todd Rowan, are you with me? Yes. Good. You came out and acknowledged that this McNeil also molested you sometime after uh, you heard about the killing. Please tell us about that. Um, well, <clears throat> I heard about it the night of, within like a couple hours of when it happened. Um, my thought was some relief and uh, because he's not going to hurt anybody anymore. And uh, also, who did it? Who got him? Who, who had had enough? Um, I came forward because it was the right thing to do. How old were you when you first met Daryl McNeil? Oh, I think I was around 14, 13 or 14. And do you remember the circumstances, uh, how you met him? 
friend of the family. He was a friend of the family. Uh-huh. And do you recall the, the first incident, how he got you uh, into his trap? Well, I ended up in his apartment <clears throat> in town, and he had given me some some beer and some marijuana and proceeded to uh, put his advances on me once he realized that I was possibly under the influence. So he used drugs drugs and alcohol to uh, to alter your consciousness? Correct. And, uh, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry, no, go ahead. And then, uh, when did you see him again after that incident? Oh, approximately about, he'd come back at me about every three to four months. He would call you on the phone, or how would he get in contact with he, you? He would figure out a way to get me to come work for him, do some jobs for him, because I have a really strong work ethic, and, you know, I don't work to make money to survive, so... That's what you do. And when did you first uh, meet Aaron Vargas? Uh, I didn't meet Aaron until um, I had picked up a probation violation that uh, I had to do 30 days on, and I met him last summer uh, when I had to go do my jail time. So in other words, all the years that you were being abused by McNeil, you were not aware of Vargas or that other young men were also being abused by McNeil? No. And while yes, this, that's correct. That's correct. And, and while this was going on during this, this, these many years that he was doing this to you, did you ever tell anybody about it? Oh, no, of course not. That, was, that would be too embarrassing, and um, you just didn't speak of those things because it was wrong, morally wrong. I have my own issues um, of the moral situation of it. So it's it's like what you heard Dr. Syrup say a few minutes ago. This was uh, this was the unspeakable that you had to keep some somewhere inside of yourself. Absolutely. And did you ever think about going to the police, or was that also just something that was? just out of you, just not possible for you? Um, you? Why? It would bring attention on me and make me look, you know, you, you just you didn't do that. It, it would bring attention to the family that you felt was unnecessary and didn't need to happen. So it, it would be a... Not to mention the fact that it was embarrassing and you just, you that wasn't something that happened and you were a bad person, you know? So it would it would humili it would humiliate you and your family if you'd let anybody know about it at all. Exactly. So there you were over these years, years, uh, being molested by this man and keeping this information in yourself. Trying to go to school. Uh, did you turn to drugs and alcohol? Did you did you get suicidal? What kinds of things did you were you dealing with all by yourself during this time as a young teenager? Well, you would draw. You would draw from everything. You you did what was uh, <clears throat> supposed to be the norm. You know, I participated in some sports. I was in Boy Scouts. Uh, you know, we did church activities. I stayed involved with that. And all this time, you know, you're just like, and you're carrying that with you. And so, yeah, I did. I turned to drugs, uh, started smoking pot, eventually turned into, you know, playing with a little bit of cocaine, uh, went to my... Went to a rehab experience, my first blackout from drinking at 15 and a half years old. Oh, my. Uh, 
So, and played with cocaine a little bit. As I got older, went into my, had uh, had enough, was enough, and was living in Los Angeles and went to an outpatient uh, treatment facility. And did McNeil follow you? Did he keep calling you on the phone when you left uh, the area, went down to L.A.? Um, no, but he would find out when I would come home on vacation and approach me then. And, you know, by this time, I was like, enough is enough. I, I can't, no, leave me alone. Don't bother me anymore. And, you know, through the years, he would he would confront me and say, hey, I need some help. No, I'm not doing this. In other words, he kept at it. He, he would find out, he actually would find out when you were coming home to visit your family, and, and then he would yeah. make contact. Right. See what I was doing, trying to get me to go do something or go, you know, maybe do a job. No, I'm not going to do that. Oh, so he used, uh, he used the guise of uh, come and work for me as a way of making contact? Right, right. Uh, and, um, you know, say, hey, I'll kick you a little bit extra money, you know, pay you pay well for this. Well... So I was like, no, we're not going to do that. I'm, I'm not going there anymore. What well, was the nature of the predator and to know his prey? Oh, yeah. He, he, his, his approach has changed a little bit. He was real subtle and, and caring and, and not so aggressive. You know, this is, we're going back almost 30 years here. Um, and now, you know, from what I'm understanding and hearing of Aaron's situation, he got way more aggressive. Now, uh, Todd, you said you heard about the shooting within hours. How did you hear about it? Um, he lived on a property that was owned by a very good friend of my father's. I see. So it was uh, the word got around uh, telephonically and you got a call about it. What was your reaction when you heard that, uh, that Aaron uh, shot McNeil? Well, like I said earlier, um, there was some relief, and then there was some, you know, the relief that he's not going to hurt anybody anymore. Because later on, I found out, you know, about 10 years ago, when I went to the police and filed a report, that uh, there were many others, and um, they wanted me to help. So there was some relief there, and then there was the question, okay, who got him? Who did it? Who, who had had enough? I want to see if I understood what you just said. Did you say that 10 years ago you went to the police? Yeah. And you were told by the police that other people had also reported this about me? No, 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 no. No. There was nothing, nothing ever mentioned of that. They wanted me to help them t to do an investigation. I was not in the mind space to be able to handle that. I see. I continued, and after that, I continued... Um, thinking this was after a suicide attempt because I couldn't handle it anymore. Wow. There was nothing I could do. Uh, Selena and Robin, do you know of anything that uh, the police did uh, following uh, Todd's report 10 years ago? Have you heard anything? Did the police follow up in any way with McNeil after they heard a report from Todd Rowan? No, it's my understanding that the police never followed up on any of the reports that they had, and there were at least three. There were at least three reports? Yes. How did you find that out? After all this happened, I know Daryl's ex-wife had gone to the police in the 80s, late 80s, and they wouldn't do anything. M McNeil's wife herself went to the police, the, you're ex saying? Ex -wife. His ex-wife yes. went to the police, yes. and they didn't do anything? Right. 
And Selena, do you know anything about this, about the police reports or, or about anybody going to the police? Have you heard anything about that you know, prior to the shooting? I remember Aaron one time talking about he thought that someone had gone to the cops about Daryl, um, but he wouldn't get into detail. He just said he got he got someone. That was his usually his choice of words. He got someone. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. And um, I actually, when Daryl was stalking us, had threatened to go to the cops and told Aaron I was going to the cops. And he begged me not to. He said that it wouldn't do any good and that he didn't want me to do it. Um, I would have to assume now that it would be because he knew other people had done it and it got them nowhere. According to the newspapers, 12 men came forward after the shooting and said that McNeil had also abused them. Are either of you aware of that? Or, Mindy, do you know anything further about the 12 men who came forward? Um, Yeah, they came forward, and several of them gave statements to Aaron's attorney. And, um, you know, Todd's one of them, and he's become a good friend of the family. And then there's several others that that we know of. And and they all have similar, similar stories to Aaron's. And they've all struggled with similar problems of drugs and alcohol abuse. All of these men, this uh, McNeil was abusing at least a dozen a dozen young men for a, for a period of close to maybe twenty years, and maybe more. Are you saying, Robin? Oh, I believe probably forty years. Maybe forty yeah, years. Yes, uh huh. Yes. Because what he was in his sixties when he when he died. Right. Uh-huh, so maybe 40 years. And all of these men, Mindy, you're saying that, that there's a history now that all of these men have turned to alcohol and drugs in their lives? Almost all of them, um, yeah, have struggled with drug and alcohol abuse. And, and, then, and then one of them, he committed suicide four years ago, and his family came forward and, and told the story of his abuse. He was Daryl's little brother in the uh, Big Brothers program. And Daryl abused him for several years, and Daryl was stalking him um, around the time that he committed suicide. He shot himself in the head in his yard because he just, his brother says that he was saying to him, I don't know what to do. This man's bothering me. He's come back into my life, and I don't know what to do. And he killed himself because he had just, he had had enough, and he didn't know how to deal with it. Dr. Syrup. Is turning to drugs and alcohol and, and suicide pretty typical for people who have been abused over such a long period of time? Oh, absolutely. It's, um, it's very much a part of that kind of um, pattern simply because the, the general public, as I mentioned earlier, have, a, um, have some knowledge, of course, of what we call the outer world of trauma. So when someone like Aaron Vargas gets arrested for... Uh, shooting a man, and then later we find out his motivation, which was what had happened to him, systematic sexual abuse for many, many years. They they hear the words molestation and sexual abuse, and then they can relate to it to some degree, but not profoundly uh, like Todd has done or Aaron had done, simply because they didn't have the experience. It's just like the way we learn things when we're children. We watch children play in the schoolyard playing kickball, 
but we haven't played yet. It's only when we go out there and we actually kick the ball and play that we have the experience of doing it, and then we understand it in a deeper way. So the outer world of trauma is well known when we pick up the newspaper and we read about molestation and sexual abuse, but the inner world, the inner world of trauma is only known by individuals that have gone through the experience and who have it and then are condemned to having these these uh, different kinds of experiences that occur within, like depression and anguish and sorrow and self-blame. When Todd was talking earlier, it was uh, it's, it makes one feel so badly because the, the abused child always blames himself, and it's never their fault. Because here's this big person, this older person, this adult, whose job in life is to take care of all children, isn't doing it. And rather than taking care of the child, he's actually hurting him. So the little kid who can't abstract and figure out what's going on feels, he doesn't think, he feels, well, it must be me. It must be my fault. I'm bad. And then after that, he continues to treat himself as though he's some unworthy person and, of course, wants to get away from those feelings. And so uh, the tendency is to use alcohol or drugs or sex or anything that helps him get away from feeling the onslaught of this perpetual, relentless um, torturing that occurs within by way of memory and re-experiencing the trauma and intrusive thoughts that make him think about it. And then, of course, um, flashbacks, which are not the same as memory. Flashbacks come back suddenly. Memories are, are usually, there's some distance between memories and the way that we think about them, but flashbacks are immediate, and they come with the full pressure and anxiety of, of uh, what actually occurred in the initial offense. So, yes, to use drugs and alcohol is very common, and um, it never really works. It just postpones. Dr. Syrup, almost 30 years ago, I guess it's more than that now, actually, 1973 it is, it's 37 years ago, Dan White walked into the uh, city hall in San Francisco. He crawled in actually through a window. He had a pistol in his pocket and he had an extra magazine. He, uh, he killed the uh, mayor of San Francisco, uh, Mayor Moscone. Uh, he then reloaded his pistol, went down the hall, and he uh, executed Harvey Milk. Uh, the physical evidence showed that the last two shots uh, were uh, conducted by holding the pistol up against um, Milk's head uh, and firing directly into his head. Uh, Dan White um, was uh, convicted of uh, voluntary manslaughter the exact same uh, charge that um, that Aaron Vargas has been convicted of. Uh, Dan White, for that uh, premeditated double murder, uh, was sentenced, to, I think, to seven years and did five years in jail. He used diminished capacity and the famous Twinkie defense, as you may recall. One of our colleagues, uh, Marty Blinder in Marin County, uh, uh, described that as uh, you know the reaction to the uh, to the sugar and the Twinkies. Um, uh, what do you think would be an appropriate um, uh, punishment, if you will, or treatment for Aaron Vargas? Well, that's an excellent question. Um, with regard to punishment, um, it's ironic that that word is used because this man, this poor man, has been punished already for twenty years and. 
it's also ironic that he's in an actual prison because he's been in a prison within for this length of time, and he's been virtually condemned to this hideous dungeon down below where he's savaged over and over again and attacked without warning from within and, and with disturbed sleep and no rest and no escape. He's always looking over his shoulder for the next piece of pain. So he suffered greatly now uh, for many, many years just by occupying geography and walking around because of what's going on inside his mind and heart and soul. And then to keep it secret so there's no way to get support or feel the expressions of love and support that clearly his family feel for him. So I, it seems like he's suffered enough. And to get good counseling and um, to have an opportunity for drug and alcohol rehabilitation and job training seems to be a much more plausible and fe feasible way to treat this poor man rather than putting him back in prison for longer where uh, God knows what's going to happen in there if he has to he has to stay in there longer. So I, I certainly think he should be liberated from the torture that he's already experienced, and he's suffered enough. One of the questions the authorities will raise in listening to what you just said is, what about his risk? Is he a person who may snap again and kill again? What 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 do we know about the history of of people who have been abused once they've done something like this? Are they liable to repeat, or is the fact that they have killed the person who was the abuser their 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 ultimate act, and they are not what you might say serial killers or people who are going to go on to do it again and again? So, what is your actual question? Are you asking me whether or not Aaron would do something like that again? Correct. Well, I have no way of knowing whether or not he would. Um, uh, I certainly can't disclose anything that he's told me, but uh, these circumstances are so vastly different. Usually when a court of law addresses someone like a, psychologer, a psychologist or a psychiatrist to make a predictive answer to something like that, the usual answer is uh, whether or not a person has had a long history of perpetual and continual violence. This man, it seems to me, has been pretty much free of that until he was put under tremendous pressure and also under the influence of alcohol at the time and in great peril in reference to feeling about oh my god is this going to happen to the next generation in my family is this going to happen to my child how can i protect my child i mean he hasn't told me that but i can't help but think that that was running through his mind and he's told others that Yes, that he was terribly afraid that uh, it was going to happen to his daughter. And Selena certainly makes it clear that Daryl McNeil was trying to get his clutches, trying to get his hands on that baby. Yes. Uh, the ruse was, the trick was, under the guise of, of babysitting. Selena, do you believe that McNeil was trying to get his hands on your baby? Yes. Mindy Galliani, is it accurate as far as you know that Daryl McNeil's own stepson came forth and acknowledged that he has been had been abused by uh, by McNeil. Yeah, that's that's true. He was also abused by McNeil, and that's why um, Daryl's former wife went to the police because it was it was her son who Daryl had abused. It was her son. That's why she came forth. His former wife. Now, what about the widow of Daryl McNeil? What position do you know of that she has taken with regard to your brother? Well, the statements that she's given my family and Aaron's attorney is that um, she doesn't feel that he should receive a long prison sentence. 
she she would like him to be able to get help and she's known Aaron since he was a kid and she said that she loves him and she knows him to be a kind and caring person. What would you like to see done with your brother, Mindy? I would like to see him get help. Um, that That's what he needs. And it's taken him 20 years to get the courage to to tell about the abuse and to ask for help. And it would just be such a horrible thing to deny him that, what's taken him so long and so much courage to ask for. Do you think that... Uh that he ought to go to jail at all, or do you think he ought to go directly to uh, some kind of a treatment facility? He needs to go directly to a treatment facility. If he stays in, in jail, it's going gonna, it's gonna to damage him further. It's, he won't be able to get help while he's in jail. When you're in jail, it's the type of environment where you have to you know, be on guard. It's a hostile environment. He has to stuff all of those feelings down and and pretend that he's strong and tough, and, and he can't deal with all of these feelings in that kind of environment. It's, it's just going to make things worse. Selena, what would you like to see done with your fiancé, Aaron Vargas? I'd like to see him get some help that he deserves desperately. Um, I believe the same thing that Dr. Sarup said and Mindy, that sentencing him to more prison time is just continuing the same prison he's been in his whole life. Um, I believe that if he's someplace where he can get the help that he needs, but also have a connection with his daughter and grow from a healthy place with with um, us as a family, the three of us, I think that that would be the best thing that we could do for him. Todd Rowan, what would you like to see done with Aaron Vargas? What do you think is a proper tr- treatment or punishment for him? Well... Get rid of the substance and alcohol abuse situation and then deal with the uh, psychological effects that this has had on him. Um, I'm participating in a group right now where I live that has done um, um, fantastic, has had fantastic results with me. It's empowering. I'm not a victim anymore. I'm a survivor. Um, time served and get the help he needs. So you're saying that based on the help that you've already gotten, you think there's hope for Aaron Vargas that he can... Yes, there's all, yes, there is hope. You think it's possible that he can live a relatively normal life with Selena and with the baby? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Robin, you're his mom. This has been a, this has been a horrific experience for you. On a, I'm sure on a day-to-day basis, and still the uncertainty of what's going to happen uh, to your son. What are you hoping for? I want him to come home on June 15th. I want him in treatment. You have to understand that Aaron doesn't know what it's like to feel safe in his own home, his own community. But now he can learn that. Now that Daryl's gone, he doesn't have to be afraid. In other words, for the first time in his life... Since he was 11 years old. Since he was 11 years old. I don't believe uh, alcohol is going to be a problem for him now that Daryl's gone. I think that was the whole trigger of it. Mindy, you remember what he was like before he was 11 years old. And you remember the change, evidently, that occurred at that time. What, What was he like before he was 11 years old? 
He was just a really kind and caring and happy-go-lucky little kid. He was the kind of guy who got along with everyone. He had lots of friends and was well-liked. And, and he was just, you know, always out playing in the yard and riding his bicycle, always on an adventure. And then after Daryl started raping him, he just became depressed and withdrawn and sad and angry. And he withdrew from the family and his friends and... His grades dropped um, dramatically, and um, so he even though you a broken kid, even though you didn't know what was happening to him, you did see that change, and you can remember it—that change in his personality, that change in his behavior, and the change in his his, his grades at school to, from that time. And then you sort of put the whole thing together once you found out when it started. Right. Yeah, I can remember. I can remember the feelings that that I just felt witnessing Aaron's pain. Um, it's been very, it was very painful and is very painful for me. And I'm not even the one that experienced the abuse. So I can't imagine how painful it's been for my brother. Incredibly painful for you, yeah. his sister, for you, his fiance, Selena, for you, his mom, Robin. Dr. Syrup, we're going to end with you. You heard Todd Rowan say that he's getting help and he believes that it's possible that, the, that, that Aaron can get help and there's hope for him. What do you think? Can he get help? Can he be healed? Oh, absolutely. And I have to salute Todd for his bravery and his courage and his willingness to continue trying. I mean, the real definition of failure in life is not trying, and Todd is obviously doing that valiantly. And it's very, very hard to do when you've uh, gone through the kind of experiences he's gone through because of... Uh, carrying around uh, those sorts of feelings that make you think you're a failure and it's your fault. Uh, but Todd's done just amazingly well and seems uh, it certainly sounds like he's continuing to do it as he underwrites and underscores the importance of getting some treatment and some help. And uh, he said something that was really beautiful is that, uh, you know, he's not a victim anymore and uh, he's, he's, he's his own person. And uh, he's not a victim anymore. He's actually a hero. Because to have the courage to stand up and do that sort of thing and come forward for Aaron is absolutely remarkable. And um, I think that actually Aaron also was standing up for himself when he tried to do the best he could to protect his family and himself from the future uh, pain. So I think that uh, it's a wonderful thing. Dr. Sarp, I want to thank you for joining us today. Todd Rowan, who stepped forth and acknowledged that you also were abused by Daryl McNeil. Uh, Mindy Galliani, Aaron's sister, I thank you for the courage to step forth and, and air this on radio today. Selena, Aaron's fiancé, thank you so much for being here. And, of course, Aaron's mom, Robin, thank you so much for your bravery in, in bringing this all out to the public. This is an issue that is touching people in our community it's touching people around our country, and it's touching people around the world. Hardly a day goes by that we don't read about something revolving around the Catholic Church or the Boy Scouts of America. Now we have a situation where Aaron Vargas is going to face somewhere between 10 years in jail and treatment. What do you all think? Something for us each to look at. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is contributed to by our staff at KZYX and Z, my friend and program engineer Mike DeLara, and our producer Ron Rogers. Please join me in exactly two weeks 
at this time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and health is worth fighting for.